Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome back Peter Kelly Detweiler. Peter was on episode number 16, and it's been one of our most popular episodes since we launched. So glad to have him back on again. Peter, how are you doing today? Doing quite well. Thank you, Raj. Peter, thank you for being back on. Peter, you know, since we last spoke, there's been a few obvious changes in the economy and regarding climate change. One of the things that came out earlier this year was, you know, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, his letter regarding climate change and some of the dangers that they're seeing. What are your thoughts on that letter? You know, my thoughts were it was about time. It was funny because, uh, as you know, I have this quarterly sort of newslettery thing, and I had just finished uh, putting together a week's worth of headlines from IEEE about insurance companies and banks moving away from the sector. And, uh, and, and every single day for the week before Christmas, there was some new announcement of some major bank, many of them European, um, saying they, they either weren't going to finance or they weren't going to insure. And then that letter comes out kind of like a cherry on top of the cake. And what I found really interesting about that was his comment that when this thing starts to move, it will move quickly. And I think we've seen that sort of with the S-curve adoption of technologies. And now we probably see the S-curve adoption of this idea of what is a justifiable finance and what is not. I think we're going to see a bifurcation into good banks, bad banks and to oversimplify uh, and good insurance companies, bad insurance companies with an increasing amount of societal pressure for them to move in a decarbonized direction as we see more incidents like the Australian fires. To me, it's all inevitable because you, you can't argue with the, with the atmosphere of chemistry. That's really interesting, especially regarding the bifurcation. So what I'm hearing or feeling is winners and losers. And so over the next decade, we're going to see this winners and losers play out. What are some of the telltale signs? And I'm not asking you to predict the future, but you know, telltale signs of what you might think as a company that might come out on top. So uh, there was a great Green Tech Media article uh, just yesterday, I think, about all the European oil and gas companies now moving into the solar space. Uh, I think they are going to fare much better in the transition to this uh, emerging energy economy, if you will, than, say, ExxonMobil, that every time I see another announcement about algae, it just makes me laugh and go, there's a stock I should just have the guts to short because they don't appear to have any vision as to where this is going. They just want to hold on to their assets in the ground. But again, I view this whole thing as so inevitable that uh, you got to get in front of it and start to figure out how to turn the dynamic to your advantage. So those, you know, there's a lot of the U.S. hydrocarbon companies just do not seem to have figured this out. And I think it's because they emerged from a cocoon here um, that they don't live in the same, they're not steeped in the same societal soup that the European uh, hydrocarbon, you know, energy companies have been. So they just come at it from a complete different initial psychology and philosophy, if you will. So you mentioned Cocoon and, you know, steeped in this environment. Do you think they're having trouble perhaps accepting what is almost imminent? Or do you think they really just still don't believe it? I, you know, it, <laughs> So there's two schools of thought on that. One is from the cynics out there is they will fight a rear guard action to extract value from every last drop of oil and atom or molecule of gas in the ground. Um, you do tend to have 
And I've talked to some of these guys. They tend to be old school players. You know, they're engineers and they're geologists and their demographic tends to look a lot like me, which is late 50s and white. Uh, and they've been in that same environment, that same culture for a long, long time. So there's really not a new culture that's come knocking on their door um, versus I think some of the more diverse companies overseas that tend to look at this differently. And so you see, you know, who's been making the smart acquisitions? And I wrote a piece for Forbes maybe a year and a half, two years about this. You know, Shell snapped up a lot of these companies. Um, Total bought SunPower. Um, Shell bought, you know, Green Lots, and I think they got a piece of Sonnen. And they, you know, they've been making those chessboard strategic acquisitions um, that uh, the U.S. companies just don't seem to have had any strategic acumen in so doing. So if you could have the ear of, let's say, C-level executives from these companies, what would you say to them? I would say to them, just look at what's happening. Look at the facts on the ground first. You know, just the data points. Here's a good one. So uh, we talked before we got on here about the book I'm working on. So one of the things that I saw last year was that ERCOT, for example, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, doesn't use a 30-year trailing weather forecast anymore uh, in predicting uh, future demand. Why? Because the 30 years don't serve it well, because the last 10 of the last 12 years have been the hottest on record. So 30 years tends to mute what's really happening on the ground. So I was at uh, Constellation's trading floor uh, as part of the book that I'm working on, and I met with a meteorologist. And they said, yeah, we're doing the same thing. We're looking at the the trailing 10 years because the 30s no good anymore and it's a different dynamic in the summer than it is in the winter summer yeah we're seeing more extreme heat winter we're just seeing craziness where this polar vortex will come slamming down for three or four days and the temperature will drop 30 to 40 degrees and then it rolls back up and the temps go the other way and it's just crazy to try and forecast that stuff but the facts on the ground are changing the economic outcomes and that's pretty indisputable at this point in time so I'd say look really, at those really, and then look at the psychology. Look at what you're hearing out there and then look at the weather events and then pay attention to what's happening with the reinsurance industry. Those guys run numbers all day long. That's all they do is run actuarial tables and statistics. And if they're moving away from this stuff, you ought to be paying attention. And that's exactly the point I was going to say earlier is that I think I was reading recently regarding insurance companies reevaluating 100-year floodplains and, you know, to your point, running the running the data, running the analysis, and deciding that perhaps these 100-year floodplain data that they have is no longer viable for insuring some of these properties or some of these areas that they once would. Yeah, I was looking at something. This was back when I started getting really obsessed about the reinsurance industry in 2006. Lloyd's had their 360 report. Swiss Re and Munich Re were looking at this. Allianz was looking at it. And one of them said, we forecast higher transportation costs in Europe because the Rhine River will no longer be a viable uh, waterway for navigation because the, the reliable snow melt from the Alps will simply have been exhausted after it melts. And then when you're relying on rainfall, you don't get the same highway for transportation. So, I mean, it has the potential to impact everything. So I wonder how that same kind of analysis applies here in the States with some of our big rivers that we use for barges here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, right now they're all in flood stage, right? <laughs> Right. So you kind of mentioned your book. I'd love to hear more about your book, where you are, what are you thinking, perhaps even a published date. 
Sure. So it's a 350-page uh, manuscript, half of which I need to deliver by mid-April. That's a little bit scary. And the other half by mid-August uh, to Globe Pequot Press, which is a I was ex- I was thrilled to get them as a publisher because of their reputation. And uh, it will be published in the spring of next year. And it is about this energy transformation, uh, driven by the three Ds of decarbonization, digitalization, and decentralization. And the challenge is, you know, for whom am I writing it? And then how do I write that? The for whom, the first sort of layer of that audience are the half a million or a million of us that have to do with the electron, that work in utilities, that work in sustainability, wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, et cetera, who are each in our own particular vertical segment and don't have the time to pop out of the prairie dog hole and look around and see what else is happening, which is what had happened to me when I was heading up Constellation's DR group. I didn't know anything that was happening with solar or wind or any of these other things. So when I left and started writing for Forbes, I wanted to try and stitch it all together. And that's now what I do pretty much for a living is stitch it and communicate it. So there will be chapters on how does a control room work at an ISO. I just visited ISO New England a couple of weeks ago. Then obviously the trading floor at Consto. Um, I talked to GE. I'm going to go over and see the 12 megawatt turbine in Rotterdam and then pop down to Cherbourg, France and see where they're putting together the two half clamshells of the 107 meter uh, longest wind blade in the world. So the point is various site visits, talking to people all around the country. Each one of those visits serves as sort of that on-ramp to to then discuss what did I just see, why does it matter, and ultimately, how does that have implications for the reader in this, the largest economic transformation by far that has ever occurred in the history of humanity. I mean, this thing makes the Industrial Revolution look like a farm game, you know, basically preseason baseball relative to, uh, let's say, the World Series last seven games. It's just so much bigger in its magnitude and in its significance to us as humanity. And it's a story that, you know, some days I, I wake up and go, oh, my God, I have so much to write. I have so much to sort through. Why am I doing this? And why do I think I should be the person you know, writing this book. And there's certainly some other people focusing on it too. And then I look around and go, who else is going to tell the story? Most people have a day job and um, don't maybe um, spend as much time on the phone with people and doing the Forbes pieces. And I've just been fortunate to have a lot of exposure in a lot of places. And Raj, the thing I can tell you that's fantastic, the level of generosity. I was at NIPA, New York Power Authority yesterday doing a full day lecture on battery storage. And afterwards, they took me up to the control room and they're like, you need to come back and tell our story. We've got some really interesting stuff going on, combining supply and then 22,000 buildings we serve for the state. And we'd love to help you with the book. And I'm, I'm hearing that all over the place. If I talk to people, they are more than generous with their time and just suggesting who, I, who else I might talk to. And I think people are really interested and eager to get this story out there. You know, I, I so agree with you. I almost feel like your book needs to be a living document. I, you know, trying to keep up with all the changes that are taking place. I recently finished a book by Peter Diamandis, and it's called "The Future Is Faster Than You Think." Yeah. And they had a footnote at the end of that. I listened to the audio version and have the Kindle version. But the footnote is that by the time that book was published, a lot of things that they were talking about would already be out into the world and actively, you know in commercial value. And so I'm thinking with your book, 
there's almost got to be a piece of that in the last chapter where you can keep on potentially updating it. Now, I'm assuming you're doing a physical copy. Are you going to do an audio copy too? Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of times people say, well, how are you going to start the thing? And I said, well, I've been thinking the first sentence of the book, which would rather suck, to put it mildly, from a marketing perspective is, by the time you read this book, half of what's in here will be obsolete, which is the truth. And in fact, um, the work that I do um, when I go around and do my lectures on transformation of power grid or energy storage, et cetera, the, the half-life of the facts that I bring to the conversation is probably six months or less. That is, if some data piece is six months or older, it's not worth talking about anymore. But at the same time, it's that dynamic that would make the book obsolete in some sense that's also the potential for our salvation. Because if this stuff doesn't move at that pace, we don't have a shot. So what one then has to do is focus on, yes, these are the facts today. We know they're going to change tomorrow, but the drivers will not change. The fundamentals that are causing the acceleration of this change, that's the critical piece. If you walk away from the book or one, or a conversation understanding what are the underlying fundamentals that are pushing this, then the facts don't matter so much because you've really taken away the key lesson. I agree. And I think another thing is that you mentioned the data points where if you can start putting the data points together, you can perhaps start adding a trend to it and then extrapolate that trend to give you an opportunity going forward. Again, going back to the Peter Diamandis book, you know, their big conversation is the convergence of different technologies coming together and what the potential is for that going forward. And I think some of that will be, you know, obvious in your book too, where you mentioned battery storage earlier, you mentioned wind earlier, but the convergence of some of these technologies and the possibilities of the opportunities, perhaps from an investment standpoint or from an employment standpoint going forward. Well, sure. I mean, let's just look, look at a couple trends. First of all, the electron, whether in the form of the electron itself or in the form of hydrogen that was created from an electron, is destined to take over uh, the hydrocarbon in many places because it has to. So for example, in Qatar, or Qatar, if you want to pronounce it that way, they have this new solar project that came out at 1.57 cents a kWh. And they're now looking in the Middle East at producing green hydrogen at relatively low costs already. And one of the uh, VPs from Siemens said, we think green hydrogen will be the new petroleum within two decades. And you're already seeing, you know, Tison Krupp testing uh, the manufacture of steel using hydrogen as a raw fuel. So we're going to see this invasion, if you will, or spreading of the electron undergirded by renewables. And then you're going to see a collision between the transportation sector and, say, transmission distribu distribution in the sense that uh, very soon we'll have bidirectionality in a lot of our vehicles. So it won't just be smart charging and tummy tucking the duck, you know, taking power from the California grid during the middle of the day when the sun is shining. But for example, Bluebird, the bus company, has announced it will have a bi-directional bus in the market by the end of this year with probably a battery that's probably 250, 300 kilowatt hours. So once you start to get, and we see these models now, already there's a company in Toronto called Peak Power that's signing up 100 drivers. And this summer, they will plug in their vehicles into two high-rises in Toronto, when prices go high, the cars will discharge into the buildings to offset load from the grid. So we're seeing the first data points that this collision is going to happen. 
And yes, you're right. These conversions are going to occur all over the place where people go, what if I take the peanut butter and put it with the jelly and then add some bread? Oh, I got something new I didn't have before. It's going to be amazing. One of the things you spoke about earlier was the clamshell and the you know the blades for the turbines. And a question I have regarding that, there's been a few articles recently. I'm just thinking about you know picking your brain in on this. Questions about the recycling of the blades. Have you come across any companies or opportunities where you've seen that being done effectively? Yeah, there's that one that was uh, written about first in uh, uh, public radio, uh, NPR, uh, like October of last year. Where you know they're having trouble with these blades because they're they're designed for 20 or 25 years of stress, right, in the weather. So then when you want to take them apart. Uh, it's not easy because they were designed not to come apart um, and they're really huge. So they have to saw them up and then they've been trying to drive over them with, you know, bulldozers and, and so on. They don't compress very well. They're a problem. Um, so one company is chipping them and trying to turn them into floors and wallboard and that sort of thing. But they're in the early stages and they're trying to still build the business. There's certainly no supply chain in the sense that they need to know how many blades they're going to get and they need to know who's going to buy it and sit there in sort of the middle and suture both sides of that equation together. Um, so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there. I think it was Vestas that announced recently that they're going to work on an initiative so that they will have recycling in mind when they start to manufacture their equipment in the fu- in the future. Because we have to increasingly think about this from uh, a circular economy type of a perspective where everything has another use or a way to be turned into the raw material for the next industry. You know, I think that perspective is really important with another gentleman on the show and he was he's with the company or organization for zero waste and one of the questions he likes to ask his clients or companies is do you have a waste management program and most say yes and then he comes back with why what if you come out of the gate with a zero waste so it sounds like a similar perspective what you're saying here is that okay we're going to build or design these these blades but let's start thinking about how we can dispose of them once the, their useful life is over yeah, I mean, this is a societal thing. We're still immature that way. If we were a mature society for thinking about these, we'd function like the earth does. You know, leaves fall from the tree, they rot, they turn into the soil for the tree. And, and it all just, you know, it, you have circularity. Right now, we basically design things for, say, single-use plastic throwaway. All the externalities are borne by all of us, but somebody else besides the person who has a P&L spreadsheet, right? Plastic goes into the ocean, Pollution goes into the air, dye goes into rivers and streams, whatever. You know, that all eventually will change because it has to, partly because psychology changes, partly because, you know, with 9 billion people on the planet, you just can't afford to be stupid anymore uh, because you'll drown in your own swill, if you will. Um, so you have, you know, cradle to uh, cradle, to cradle. you know, Bill McDonough, um, folks really thinking about how do you manufacture from the get-go with disassembly in mind. There was an article last week in one of the magazines about GM and their battery team, and they're now talking about designing that skateboard platform that undergirds the, the electric vehicles with disassembly in mind so that right from the get-go, they know how they're going to process those batteries for second-life applications and make it easier than it is today. That kind of thinking has to be and eventually will be integrated into everything. We won't see it. Well, you're younger than I am. I probably won't see much of that in my lifetime, but I view it as an inevitability. Well, let's hope you do, Peter. Let's hope you do. (laughs) So 
forecast, crystal ball, this year, what are the, some of the big changes you think might happen? Okay, so first on the disagreeable side, the coronavirus is definitely going to cut into the forecasted installments of wind, solar, and storage. Already, for example, Hubei province in China makes about 60% of China's batteries, and they're more than 50% of world supply. Their production's down, um, so the estimates are that mm, battery output might be cut by 10% or more. Uh, out of China for the year. Um, there was an estimate from Wood McKenzie the other day that 6,000 megawatts of the, say, 22,000 megawatts of wind in advanced construction right now, there's another 22,000 megawatts of wind um, in, well, I should say under construction, and then another 22 in advanced development. Some of that probably won't happen because many of the parts for those turbines get sourced out of China. Uh, with uh, Even with inverters, the uh, quarterly call that uh, Enphase had a week and a half ago, they indicated that they're tracking the issue closely, but that they're probably going to have to expedite shipments of inverters to the U.S. by air, uh, simply because the supply chain is disrupted not only in the manufacturing process, but in the logistical process as well. So this is certainly going to have an impact and a ripple of effect all across this emerging renewable energy economy, without a doubt. The question is going to be, you know, how, how severe is it and what are the initial and then the secondary and tertiary, some unexpected impacts. Longer term, though, I think we're going to see that the industry continues to grow. We're going to see more power purchase agreements with corporates and institutions and utilities. Um, I think we're going to continue to see uh, cost declines for, you know, storage, solar, bigger turbines and wind. A lot of the wind companies are now, you know, there are six companies that manufacture turbines over 10 megawatts. I was reading something the other day uh, that both GE and Siemens Gamesa are looking at turbines in the 12 to say 14 or 15 megawatt range, gives you higher capacity factors. So big picture, the technology is going to get better. The costs are going to continue to fall and we'll see more coal retirements. I think one thing we will see, Raj, more pressure on natural gas. Coal's been the whipping boy so far, but once people wake up to the fugitive emissions from methane and just what's been going on, for example, with flaring. So just for a simple statistic, in the Permian Basin, 35% of the gas produced in the Permian Basin is free associated gas. That is, if you're drilling for oil, you're drilling for liquids, the gas comes along for the ride. There's so much of it that they're flaring it not only at the wellhead, but also flaring it at the production facilities. And there was an article I read just this morning with someone saying that the numbers being reported are a joke, that the amount of of CH4 being flared and vented is significantly higher than is being self-reported. So when it becomes clear how much leakage there is from the gas infrastructure and the fact that you know, methane is roughly 25 to 28 times more effective at trapping the Earth's heat than CO2 is, then the crosshairs is going to shift over to natural gas. And you can already see American Petroleum Institute, API, starting to make noises about chasing down the leaks and making a more sustainable uh, fuel. But uh, and, and we're seeing the gas hookup bans in places like Berkeley. Mm, the whole view of gas as a bridge fuel, that's coming under fire already. And so I think by the end of this year, we're going to start to see gas being portrayed as the next villain in this climate change uh, panorama, if you will. 
I really appreciate that view. Have to address the elephant in the room. We have an election coming up. How important of a role do you think the conversation around climate change is going to play in the election? You know, here's my concern. Most people look at their 401k if they have one or their job if they have one. And they say, yeah, I'm really concerned about climate change, but I'm comfortable right now. And I, people always, no matter what the situation, they learn to live with the status quo, and then they fear that change. And certainly, um, the Democrats are recognizing that this is an issue. It's really unfortunate this has become so much of an us-them issue when it's all about us as a whole. Um you do see younger voters on the Republican side start to put pressure on it. And with all due respect, a trillion trees is, is stupid. I mean, that's like saying, yeah, we'll have a whole bunch of kids and we'll send them out into the world, but we're never, but we won't have a Head Start program. Like, yeah, we can plant a trillion trees, but if there's not a long-term plan to keep trees from being cut and to raise them and ensure that they're actually absorbing carbon, like that requires political will and sophistication. This is just all window dressing right now. But at least for the first time, we're hearing the GOP articulate that climate change is something they're hearing from their voters. Uh, certainly the Democrats are jumping on it. Trump doesn't think it's even real. I worry about the outcome of the election, but let's take a worst case scenario. Let's assume from a climate perspective, the worst case scenario is Trump gets reelected. He'll do more to destroy science um, as he already has, but the states will continue to push back. We've, we see another state every couple months adopting this 100% you know, decarbonization by 2040, 2045. The elephant or whatever, the cat is out of the bag, whatever you want to call it. The the fact remains that renewables are now by far the cheapest resource out there for dumping electrons into the grid, getting better every day. And digitalization improves all the time with the application of more artificial intelligence. So yes, uh, even if the election goes, from my perspective, the wrong way, and we spend another four years sort of fiddling while Rome burns at a federal level, and the FERC is certainly going to cause a lot of problems, as they have recently. Still, there will be a non-significant amount of progress being made. Um, not as much as it could have been, but it won't be shut down entirely. And that's what I'm most optimistic about. And I hate to frame this in political terms, because I think that's a very immature way of having to look at this. I agree with you. I recently interviewed a gentleman named uh, Charles Hernick, and we spoke about the same thing regarding, you know, taking opposite standpoints and perhaps how we can all work together to make this thing, you know, climate change re not only real, but how we can bring it to the forefront. Also regarding the 401k that you mentioned, people tend to prioritize from economic value. I wrote a blog post this morning on my personal blog around, you know, the myth or the fable of the boiled frog and how people don't realize what we're in until it's too late. So hopefully that doesn't happen here. Yeah, I think that it might, but from an investment standpoint, look, think how awesome this is, right? If you if you didn't care about the future of the planet and you just said, oh, I want to make a ton of money, you're staring at a dynamic that is ineluctable, that, that, that the climate is going to change and that there are a set of technologies and companies out there with business models addressing that. That is the hugest investment tailwind that's going to involve the expenditure of tens of trillions of dollars right? That is inevitable. It is going to happen. And so most of the time when you go into investments, you kind of have this thesis of, eh, this might work out, this might not. Now it comes down to a question of picking companies, right? Winners and losers. But 
But if you're just someone who cares about a 401k and you're just a self-interested person who doesn't care about the outcome, but you still have an investment thesis, the likes of which has rarely been seen before. So maybe the way to tackle this on both sides of the issue is just to appeal to self-interest and say, look, it doesn't matter whether you think, whether you care about a future generation or not, or you think this is all hooey or whatever, just follow the money and get in front of that and make some yourself, which is a very cynical and self-interested way to put it. But the reality is if we don't have massive corporations and self-interested individuals making bets on the board to help make this happen, it ain't going to happen. Sacrifice alone will not be enough. Self-interest has to be the way this moves forward. Totally agree with you. You know, Peter, I usually ask my guest at the end of the show to share some advice, but I'm going to go ahead and share your advice of follow the money. If nothing else, self-interested, follow the money. And Peter, I always feel smarter after talking to you, and I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I always enjoy the conversation, Raj, and I, I like what you're doing out there. And I love the name of this, Bigger Than Us, because it certainly is. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.